Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, today is Helen and Robin's Book Shambles. In fact, Helen's not even in it that much, but hello, Helen. Hello. I'm very excited to be here. I've been reading a lot of books recently and it was a pleasure to read one more for this. It really was. Well, the good thing is I know, you, I know you've read this book because uh, you gave me a quote for it. Because today's book shambles is uh, kind of in one way all about my book, The Importance of Being Interested. Um, because uh, I had a long conversation with Tim Minchin about it. I think you'd only read the first three chapters. I think you've read all of it because I think you sent me footnotes and corrections. Um, I definitely read all of it. I th I, that's mean to say I sent you footnotes. It makes it sound like I brought out a big red pen and went, I think you'll find. <laughs> I, I don't think that is mean, that. though. That's weird. That. When I say that, I mean it in a real... I, I have low enough um, self-confidence that I, I'm quite happy when... Alice Roberts read it and, and said... Uh, and she said, oh, here's a, here's a few things you might want to... And literally, she said, I couldn't turn off my proofreader head. So there's a comma missing, page 154, <laughs> second paragraph there. Uh, and also, uh, the thing you talk about with Stonehenge, there is some criticism as that as a theory. So there was, there's, there's a little <laughs> change that happened uh, about what I wrote about Stonehenge due to uh, Alice's advice. I love that. I, 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 it's like when people sometimes, if I write a blog post and they say... Oh, I don't know if you, you really hate this or not, but you've used a word that's totally wrong and it makes no sense. And I'm like, thank you for telling me. That's very, very useful. Obviously, I don't like it if it was, say, a newspaper that decides to write why everything in the book is wrong as a criticism. I wouldn't like that. I did. I think, no, I think I, I did send you a couple of brief comments, but that was all. But it's, but yeah, no, it's very, it's very, it's a very you book, I have to say. It's and very, now the decision has been made by those listening. <laughs> <laughs> It's a weird one. Have you ever done this with your book where when I, I I've, because I've done a few book festivals now and uh, and sometimes I've had to sit and remind myself of what's in the book and work out, if, especially if I'm doing a solo show, I think, what do I want to talk about today? And as long as I forget that the book's mine, I go, I'm quite enjoying this. Oh, that's interesting. There's another thing about Chris Hadfield in this book as well. Oh, this because it's my book. I read, and then the moment that I remember that I'm reading my book, I go, "Well, that was a clumsy sentence." Well, that and but as, as long as for sometimes for two or three sentences, because I've just been reading someone else's book, and I grab mine, I go, "What am I going to read?" I go, "Well, that's for quite an interesting part. I think I wrote about that myself. I did write about that myself. It's my book, you idiot." And and then then I lose all the confidence in it again. I think I'm not as hard on myself as you, but I also don't look for quotes in my book very often. <laughs> And I tend to I tend to write and leave it alone so it doesn't get edited. I write one sentence and leave it alone. It takes me a very long time to write one sentence. But I write in a very different way to you because I think you write loads and edit it down. And I think a lot and then write one sentence and then hope it doesn't need to change very much. Um, and I'm never I, I seem to be a bit weird in that. But anyway, um, it's um, I can't remember why I got started on that. I think that's brilliant. Though. I, I would. Well, I say it's one of those things is I would love to be able to write like that. But I also then have to accept that that would mean that I didn't exist because I'm so wrapped up in the ramshackle tangential idiocy of what I do that to remove that would then just mean, oh, someone else. I've destroyed yeah. myself. It's not a judgment, is it? It's just different people think about things differently. And um yeah, I don't know. I I, I, f I feel like I'm the weirdo because everybody else everybody else edits and I'm like, no, I thought about it a lot and it's going to stay the way it is. Leave it alone. I mean, well, I think that's the similarity <laughs> between, you know, you, me and Josie then is that we all think we're the weirdo. Yes. And well, that is I mean, you know, I feel that that is all that is that's us as a shambles collective. Sometimes we're the ones who all think, think we're the we're the ones that have worn the weirdo hat. 
many different weirdo hats, but we've all had a weirdo hat. I'm all right. I like, I'm all right with having a weirdo hat these days. In fact, I, I thought it'd be, it's much more fun because then you don't have to remember what everyone else is doing. <laughs> you just do what you want to do and you don't have to remember what everyone thinks you're supposed to be doing. And actually it's very liberating, but we've had that conversation before. But it is, yeah, no, you're right. There is, there is a point where you go that, that you can find the balance. The balance doesn't necessarily work for 24 hours of the day, but every now and again, you can just go, I'm doing this weird thing, which is exciting and strange, which many other people would go, why are you wasting your time doing that? And I'm having a lovely time and I'm glad that I didn't fit in before. I'm, I'm glad whatever was hammered in, whatever shape I was that was hammered into the shape box is uh, as, uh, as wonky as it is. Enjoy those moments of uh, embracing the wonkiness. Um, but anyway, this is uh, Book Shambles. And uh, as I said, I had a, a conversation uh, a few weeks ago with uh, Tim Minchin. And so today's Book Shambles is in true narcissist. Well, do you know what? Why would I start doing a book podcast seven years ago? Because eventually I knew I'd have a book of my own to plug. So the whole, all of the hundreds of other episodes that have gone before this have merely been a slow lure to get you to listen to a podcast about my book. Don't leave now. Especially since there's a couple of extra bits of admin that Robin forgot to mention. Robin's book, The Importance of Being Interested, is out now. It is out today. And you can get it from all good bookshops, obviously. Or you can order a signed or a personally dedicated version from the Cosmic Shambles Bookshop. That's right, we have a bookshop now. You can get signed copies of Robin's book, of Helen's book, of books by various shambles authors like Brian Cox and Susie Gage and Dean Burnett and Ginny Smith and Hannah Fry and Adam Rutherford and lots of other people. Cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop. That's where you can get all of that. Support the show on Patreon too. Patreon.com slash bookshambles. Tickets for Nine Lessons are on sale. Here is Robin and Tim Minchin. Hello, Robin Ince. Hello, Tim Minchin. Uh, the, are you putting uh, out another book? Yes, I am. This is we're in that great situation of, of course, the disparity of uh, times. Whereas you are now, very often when we talk, you're just getting to the end of your day. You've created all manner of wonderful things. You're on your first glass of red wine. I'm on my first cup of coffee, and yeah, uh, it's perfect. It's we're, we're seeing a mind hopefully fading into the day, and another one hopefully pleasantly fading out of the day. As long as they're both fading, that's yeah. important. <laughs> as, long as, as long as they're, as they're not, not the sharp. peak activity, the worst <laughs> no one, activity of all. No one needs that. Um, you yeah, no, I just, I just wrote the... Uh, oh, yeah, you've, have you got a uh, uh, some kind of um, almost yeah, solid you, version of it? You sent me the book by PDF, which happens a lot. I'm very privileged to be sent things, but I am not capable of reading things on screens. I'm still absolutely analog with my reading and I don't have a device that, you know, I've got a phone and a, and a laptop. I don't, so I, and I don't like reading sitting up at my desk. That's not what my desk is for. So I got it printed out in A5 and bound um, and then subsequently only read a third of it. Um, so I'm just putting that out there that I didn't get it read, but I, I actually, I'm really, really enjoying it and it's got a real um it gathers momentum in a really pleasing way that is like talking to you you know you this sort of acceleration of um of of rhythm as you get on one you know and i, I See, really that, like it 
that's a good thing to know because I, I, as I was saying to you before we started this I've just I've just been in the studio doing the talking book and when you are uh, uh, that bizarre thing of constantly finding meaning because you're just having you're having to read 120 pages a day out loud yeah you have no idea where each sentence is going so you because you've forgotten by now because yeah of course. and then all you keep seeing is going what on earth will the reader make of this madness yeah. and obviously as you know like one of the hardest things is adapting the way that you perform or the way that you speak if that's yeah. the, what you do into like a, a world because trent and you producer, can't help but expect them to inherit your tone and inherit your uh rhythms but they don't necessarily in fact even though i know you reading this book is a different experience which i'll let you talk about trent your producer and then i'll i'll talk i'll speak a bit to the experience of reading it knowing you and what i think it would be like reading it not knowing you yeah, well, that's the thing, because Trent said, uh, with, with my previous book, he was like, I much prefer the first draft. I went, but that's because we work together almost every day. So you hear me going, blah, 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 blah. and another thing that's fascinating about Freud is, oh, by the way, here's a film that I yeah. saw with David Cronenberg yeah. that he did, blah, blah, blah. Whereas anyone who just picks it up will just go, I, I don't I know, know what's if I'm, going on. Am I in an arena with a madman? Uh, yeah, and because I can feel... And and to be clear, just uh, the listeners of this will know what we're talking about already, but this is different from your last book in, in that you are really trying to put your arms around the universe. You're trying to write a book that translates your passion as a kind of highly informed outsider. And you, you state that very early on. You're not a scientist, but as a passionate observer of science and a fan of science and scientists and the philosophy of science and the process, and you're trying to um, share some of that passion and you're a rare person in that for someone, there aren't many people on the planet who are bigger fans, who have read more and tried to understand more. And you're trying to give that to us. And if you know you, you can try and read it in the cadence with which I know you speak. And it makes a certain sense and you can read it and, and watch it turn corners. But I can feel in this book, the editor's uh, hand, and I think it's a very, very deft hand, uh, a deft hand, because it is making sure that if you don't know your cadence and don't understand that the way your mind works is a sort of explorer rambling through the bramble of information like noticing things out the corner of his eye if you don't know you it still sits really happily and you still get the sense of someone who is rambling that is like who is who is wandering along talking about tr trying to draw connections between the dots of his knowledge um but but i also love that despite uh, unlike talking to you which can be quite shambolic and hard to keep up with because of how many ideas you have. The way this book is divided into chapters is incredibly clear. And I encourage readers to read the chapter headings first to go, oh, so he's going to start with doubt and go to God and then move to time and then move to space and then move to the overview effect and so on and so forth and, and be a bit prepped for the journey you're going to go on. Like someone who's, uh, again, a bit of a rambler through the woods, but says, don't worry, we're going to have a cup of tea here and we're going to have a cup of tea there. And it's, it's um, I'm really enjoying it, actually. And, and it made, and after I'd got to the end of scepticism and you suddenly were on God, I was like, 
oh, what, what's the sense here? And I went back to the chapter headings and I went, oh, great. Now I've got some handles. I know where we're going to go. Yeah, that's what I, it was hard to work out the order because that was I was like, well, probably have to deal with doubt first, because yes, for any, anyone listening, the, the basic the idea, the initial idea of the book was from doing different kind of science shows for 15 years. And I'm sure you've had that with some of the ideas that you have you know, put out there on stage and in songs. Sometimes you're in a room and you can feel the audience go, oh, this thing is bigger than I thought it was, or this thing feels scarier or thornier than I thought it was. Like, Or there's when... a premise I've missed. There's a, a base level I've missed. And that's true. And that's why, sorry, to, to I'm jumping to your point. That's why it's such a great place to start is the, is the ground floor of where modern science, where uh, post-enlightenment science has come from is, uh, hold on, I think humans make terrible mistakes. I think humans might have all these biases and all these neurological problems with the, what we notice and what we don't, and all these psychological problems with what we want to discover and what we're in denial about. Is there a system by which we can observe the world whilst trying to get rid of all that shitty human stuff? And that is where you start with your book. And that is where science started. And that is where you started in your love of science. You started with skepticism, with that sort of like, well, ghosts aren't real and Jesus probably wasn't magic. What's that? Where does that thinking lead you? And of course, where that thinking led us is the stars, is knowing the composition of a fucking neutron star, you know? Well, that, well, that was why quite early on I quote at the beginning I think on the last tour that I did with Brian there was a, a he quoted John Updike where he says uh, that uh, astronomy has uh, replaced uh, religion uh, the terrors are fewer but the comforts are nil yeah and and I found that really interesting <laughs> because I really don't think the comforts are nil I really think that well I think the comforts can be nil if you skate over something if you suddenly just see an article about some mm. of the ideas about the size of the universe, the death of the universe, uh, the nature of life, the, the shortcomings of the, the way that our brain works, yeah. then you yeah. just go, oh, this is a, a terrible universe and it's finite and I'm going to... It, it doesn't even matter that the universe is finite because I'm, I'm out of it way before... And it can seem very bleak. And then, and I think once you start engaging with it, and that's part of the reason that for the book as well, it's a bit like Monkey Cage and things like that. What I hope is that at each chapter, people will go, oh, that person sounds interesting. I'm going to read their book. I mean, you know, the, every, every chapter is a starting point <clears throat> to go off into that subject if you get engaged with it enough. Yeah. But I think that thing where, first of all, I don't think the comforts are nil. And then the other thing that I was going to mention was, I remember at the end of the show um, that we did, uh, you might remember this because you, you you saw it in Sydney. There was there was uh, um, a bit where Brian says this thing where he goes the 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 laws of the the laws that uh, declare that there will be life in the universe are the same laws that mean that there must be death. Yeah, and I think in Australia and in the UK, people would kind of go, oh yeah, no, nice. When we did it in America, it really had a punch that bit. It was yeah. like, oh, right, so, the, so the laws that mean there must be, oh, wow. 
and that's the bit that I realised that now for some of those people when they leave, and we always get that as well, like people went in the car parks afterwards, they're sat with their 12-year-old who is explaining the show to them because yeah. the 12-year-old has actually taken on loads of these ideas about dark yeah. matter and dark energy and the nature of black holes and the singularity. And the mum or the dad is going, oh, my God, this is explain it to me again. And we'll get little texts saying, I, I, I feel slightly bleak at the end of it. And a lot of people don't, but there is a you know there's enough people where you go ah oh, I don't think the message should be bleak. Though- so I, I I agree, and I and I think your whole career has become about telling the story. I've, I've got so many thoughts about this. I don't know where to start. I feel like I'm a walking version of your book. Your your book ends with a chapter on imagination, and I think what's interesting about your worldview is that it's not rare but it's slightly unrepresented we seem to have this and i've written about this in an essay that i i published for the it was actually a forward for a book of australian science writing and i've talked about it in some of my um, more ostentatious speeches about the false dichotomy between science and the arts between this sort of humanity idea and this cold scientific idea uh and in a more reductive bullshit um, pseudo neurology sense the left brain right brain the feminine and the masculine you know the cold steel and the organic soil and um and it's all bullshit of course and and yet you're you're like a you're you're a, 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 you know a master of of trying to tell the story of science using um, the colors of the art, the, the the tools of the artist, comedy and and narrative and um, you know eccentricity and uh, performance, and uh, I try and do the same, although I get a little distracted. Um, but I I think um, back back to your sort of musings on people's feeling that science offers cold comfort. Um, I, I've, I've thought that maybe there's a wiring thing. You know, Brian and you and I have talked about cosmic vertigo. I can't remember who coined the phrase, but this cosmic vertigo we've talked about before on, on one of these things, I think, it describes this feeling that people get when they sit and meditate on or have explained to them, uh, you know, really sit and think about the uh, 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 the distance between the earth and the sun and then the distance between the sun and you know, the outer matter in our solar system and then the distance between our solar system and the next one and then the size of the galaxy and then the 200 billion stars or whatever it is these days in the Milky Way and then the trillion galaxies. And and, and when you really sit in that and get your head around the, the things that you discuss in chapters three and four of this book, um, the, the length of time and the distance of space, um, you can feel you people tend to feel one of two things one is euphoria and the other is despair and the despair is what uh what we whoever coined it described as cosmic vertigo this feeling of like whoa 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 i don't like that i think it goes back the 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 first time i read it was in a short history of progress by ronald wright and it it was kind of artists like paul gauguin 
apparently he felt you know that that's one of the reasons that well he did some terrible things as well when he went off yeah. as well. that's one of the reasons he, like a, oh the universe is big i better leave my yeah. family and engage yeah. with women who are far too young for me which yeah, is not vertigo, the best reaction to it <laughs> it sounds okay it's one of the things you can do vertigo is a type of anxiety right i mean mm. i'm i know there's inner ear issues and um but but vertigo as it manifests when you go up high is a an anxiety reaction i suspect I, I, please tell me if i'm talking i'm asked but that that sense of anxiety like all anxiety can can give you a little dopamine rush as well um like if you are standing on the edge of a cliff or you are running away from um someone in a, a laser you know game you're like anxious but you're buzzing and uh i've always got a buzz out of that but in recent times i've kind of i think it's cultural and i think you can learn to turn your cosmic vertigo into cosmic euphoria and i think i have and i think you have i think the bleakness that the truth sometimes seems to offer us is mitigated or 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 um sort of alchemized into the opposite into incredible optimism and uh, appreciation for the beauty of the thing by increased knowledge which is gets back to what you were saying the more you know the more what seems cold and bleak actually just makes your heart rate go up and makes you go wow what a fucking gift what an amazing thing and actually for all his curmudgeonly personality and and sometimes misjudged uh you know um <laughs> you know who i'm talking about yeah, yeah. Dork, uh, richard dawkins writes you know for all the people who hate him read his books he writes incredibly poetically about exactly this well, the blind watchmaker was one of the things that thirty years ago, whatever that I read, that kind of got me back into thinking. Oh, yeah, I was I was disenchanted by science in secondary school education, and then somewhere in my twenties, I kind of realised. But that that thing about the amount of knowledge, because I think that's some scientists like we we did a a show a while ago, which was about the the end of the universe. It was kind of partly based around Katie Mack's excellent book, uh, oh, yeah. The End of Everything, and um, and to have. Brian Green and Katie Mack and Brian Cox going, oh yeah, and another way the universe goes, yeah. the big rip. And they seem really excited. And then you realise that they're not excited by great news, everyone. The universe is not only going to end, but for trillions of years, possibly, it's going to be very boring and nothing's going to happen in it. It's not that. It's, a, it's just the excitement of going, oh my goodness, we have brains and minds that have meant we can work out our possible futures and that is the thing that i find really when i was talking to like carlos frank who i don't know if you've have oh, you yeah, ever met yeah, carlos yeah. no i haven't no he's but such I, a great guy he's yeah, so fascinating he sounds amazing this, this mix of i think to be uh um you know half jewish half catholic uh, german brought up in mexico means that yeah. first of all you have a lot of l different cultural signifiers and different attachments to different stories that give you this fantastic kind of this variety of visions and uh and he is such an interesting guy for uh as, as i talk about the fact that i had never realized having known him for, for a while that when i heard him one day saying i don't allow god into the laboratory i went ah oh, that's probably the metaphorical god that he's talking and then i spoke to me and went oh no no I, I i do believe in god and i found it 
quite amazing that first of all he could do that thing of saying god you wait here no 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 no. we don't need you for the equations and he has that great this beautiful idea of he goes basically i think god went on holiday he, he set up the laws of physics then he went off and he's not been here for for 14 billion years which you know as a but he's, which is just a, a day off for him i mean yeah I, I mean that's the thing is god does experience time very differently obviously yeah. to all other yeah. creatures in the universe it's just a long weekend he's coming he back soon has, yeah, it's just such a fascinating way that he finds of one having this this incredible comprehension of the possibilities of cold dark matter, but at the same time saying, "How can I illustrate it with this painting by Magritte?" And that you know, going back to what you were saying about that thing where we find these kind of uh, divisions and we find these these ways where you go, "Well, art does this and science does this," and then you realise that. No, that all of them are part. When you really engage, the moment that you start engaging, whatever the system is, you're trying to find some sense of structure and meaning. And either you get mm. to that point where you go, I'm happy to accept that there is no complete answer and I'm going to keep moving around in that world, or you have that reaction which is, this is much more difficult than I'd imagined, so therefore I'm going to shut that down I'm going to say the earth is flat. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have a political dogma. I'm, I'm going to go with with Stalinism or fascism or whatever it might be. I'm going to have a complete set of rules, and that seems yeah. to be one of the that point of breaking through and going. I somehow I'm going to find a way of being contented with doubt. Yeah. Because I think when you yeah. mentioned anxiety, that's the thing that I find. I sometimes wonder if the reason that I don't have. It, it doesn't terrify me and doesn't give me a huge amount of existential anxiety some of these grand cosmological ideas is because i've kept on my existential anxiety very much at human size so i'm so anxious about the world so much of the time on this scale but yeah, it's actually totally. a blessed relief, a relief. rather than going yeah. oh the universe is so big i go oh, the universe is so big this is that's a relief yeah yeah i think i think that's absolutely true and i think when I say it's, uh, you can educate yourself into that state, which I think you have, you express that in the book that you kind of got there. I think, I think you can, you can choose to pursue knowledge and start to train yourself to understand that the pursuit of knowledge itself is meaning enough, right? And I think this is where um, science and the arts and this false binary breaks down is, and I think I, is, is that, there's a buzz you get out of the pursuit of cool ideas, you know, of, um, of new thoughts. So I don't care if you're watching, you know, Breaking Bad or reading, um, you know, Hume or, or watching Sagan or going to a, a show with you and Brian Cox or whatever. What stimulates us if we allow ourselves or have the privilege of, of, um, uh, developing our brains to an extent where it does stimulate us is is new ideas is oh i hadn't thought of that and that can be the size of the universe or the possible uh death of the universe or it can be an incredible phrase that that makes you realize something about the human condition that you've always known but hadn't thought of in those terms or an incredible poem that just puts its finger on you know loss or whatever it is I think a lot of people are trained by, you know, sometimes being indoctrinated into religions and stuff, but any doctrine, whether it's sort of 
I don't know, extreme conservatism or, or, you know, psychotherapy or Scientology or, or anything, I think it can make you have an anxiety reaction to being introduced an to an idea that challenges your set of rules. So I'm, I'm just holding a mirror up to what you've already said here. And, and what's exciting about, you know, and, and you, you address this carefully with your analysis of the idea of skepticism and how it's often confused with cynicism and that doubt is seen in, in a biblical sense as bad, doubting Thomas, you shouldn't doubt. But doubt is the source of the greatest moments of your life because doubt allows you to say, maybe I don't know it all. Maybe there's something else to learn. Maybe that person at that dinner party, even though they're, they're annoying me, will have something to say that will spark a, a line of thought that will change my view of the world. So doubt allows you, um, doubt and skepticism and an acknowledgement that you're actually not there yet allows you to get these dopamine dopamine hits these the buzz of learning and i think that the, everything you talk about on stage and i think this book is the clearest manifestation of this energy you have of wanting to say how cool is finding out new shit and that's all it is man how that cool was is the original more? title yeah. And then they said that some well, some areas that, you know, how, how cool is finding out new shit would have been great. Because yeah. that is, I mean, I was wondering for you when, because I think it's very recent for me that I've in any way really become comfortable with saying, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I look back and my shame memory can really, I, I've got a very good shame memory, annoyingly, uh, which is persistent. And I think- I also to, have a very good memory of all the things you've done that are shameful. Yeah, 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 I know. And I'm still annoyed <laughs> that you haven't turned it into a musical and given me, you know, at least some percentage of net, which I know I'll never get. Um, but it, it is that, um, that, that point, I, I think of sitting down where someone's asked me something or so, and I've started talking as if I've known. Yeah. And it's only, and, and I'm sure I still do that at times, but it really, somewhere in the last 10 years, that bit of, and I think this is the big, a, a big divide that can happen in terms of ego, which is, are you reading about something or watching something or talking about something to prove you are right or to have an adventure? And an adventure where you might at times have to go, oh, oh, no, I'd not thought about yeah. that. And that, and trying that, to win that, or find the truth. Yeah, it's like, or you know, some, when people go around truth. museums, sometimes you see the dad pretending he knows everything and explaining to the child. And half of it you go, well, half of this is you're just reading off the labels and pretending you actually know that. And, and that that bit of I see it lots, you know, going around to, well, let me explain this to you. And it has, oh, none of it man. has an adventure of going, hey, let's look at that thing. I mean, it is that Feynman thing, isn't it? Let's look at the flower. Let's look at the yeah. thing. And I get, I have it, I have it in me, the the impulsive desire to show that I know something. I have it with my kids. It's a, it's a particularly, uh, I think it's more common in men I think, you know, I think it's very uh, de rigueur to, um, to sneer at, at men, but it's all the patriarchy. It's all stuff we've culturally received. We have been brought up to be told that we are valuable if we are sure. And this is dangerous. And this is why men are a bit fucked that we, we are told we have to be sure and we have to be assertive. And it's what, it's what the patriarchy has done 
to us, but, um, and I feel it in myself, but you're absolutely right. And it's, it comes with age. And I think it was Proust who put his finger on it, at least in, in the, in the way that is popularly known, this idea that the more, you know, the less, you know, I stole it and put it in, in Groundhog Day after an eternity of living one day, he was able to say, I know now that I know nothing. And, and I think it, I think it's only creeping up on me. I mean, I'm, I don't want to make myself sound too dumb. No, I don't, I don't care. I think I, I always thought that uh, I, know, I know now that I know nothing, which the Proustian thing, which has also been, you know, Buddha, it's probably Buddhist as well. It, I, I've always thought it was a bit like, oh, I'm so wise now. I'm saying this thing because, you know, I'm pretending that, you know, I'm so wise that I don't know anything, but of course, you know, a bunch of stuff and it's kind of merely mouth to pretend you don't. But I think now that what it's saying is it's not that the older you get, the more you find everything just baffling. It's that the older you get, the more, you know, the more shit, you know, about the world and the more shit, you know, about the world, the more, you know, that, the answer you think was simple is always more complicated to come back to the original uh, Uncaged Monkeys tour. And I think it was Goldacre's, you know, refrain. It's a bit more complicated than that, you know, and that, that, that is a great thing to keep aiming for, to keep understanding that true wisdom is an understanding of nuance and, and that that's in everything in politics and in science and that and that doesn't mean you know not standing up for what you believe in but it does increase your empathy and it increases your patience and it increases your wonderment probably understanding that you're never really going to get your finger on a simple answer yeah wow that that was very divergent sorry no, but that's what, well, that's one of the things that I've only recently realised, literally in the last kind of two weeks, I've finally uh, clashed into, due to various people getting in contact with me, uh, the yeah. things that I can't do with my brain. It's, it's taken me yeah. 52 years to find out, you know, because I've always wanted to be able to, uh, you know, with, with my shows, for instance, is go, oh, this show's gonna, all going to be about art. And I'll say a very clever thing at the beginning, which will set up the argument about art. And then there'll be all middle bit. And then at the end, people will go, what a brilliant conclusion. That was a very linear narrative about the history of art. And then, of course, as you said, what happens is all of these connections start happening in in your brain. And one of the things that I've only realized in in really in the last fortnight, I suppose, uh, is that I will never be able to have... Uh, you know, even when I'm reading books, a lot of the pages, I'm just, my, my eyes are seeing them, but the words aren't going in. And then suddenly there'll be something that attaches to me and something. And that that sense of it doesn't matter that you're not going to finish this book and immediately go, and now I understand all the ramifications of quantum mechanics, which is something that a mind like Alan Moore's can do. Alan Moore, in terms of the way his mind works. And that bit of realising, going, no, I'm just going to have to enjoy the fact that I finished the book and I go, I can't really remember that much about it, but there was was this one idea and there was that one scientist and they did that thing. And that's part of it, I think, is once you accept 
or try and accept you don't you don't accept it it's like getting comfortable with the problems of the way that our mind works and getting comfortable yeah. with the fact that you're is not so comfortable that you go well I'll just keep sitting here and not read anything but just comfortable enough to go I'm going to keep going because I yeah. know that as you said the dopamine hit of a revelation the dopamine yeah. hit of sometimes just staring at a star and suddenly thinking about how long the photons have been traveling and they've been yeah. unimpeded and then they hit the back of your eye and then your yeah. mind starts to put together the picture partly based yeah. on presumption and partly based on observation and you can yeah. then just go oh, i've been staring for an hour and a half now and that dopamine yeah. hit was worth it even yeah. though i'm now not qualified to lecture on astronomy you know which oh, is and <laughs> even though i now can't see because i've been staring at the sun for an hour and a half yeah yeah that's <laughs> I, I love that idea that a photon off the sun has been traveling all those millions of miles and it's just about to reach your eye and it hits a leaf instead and casts yeah. a shadow and it's like fuck so close almost gotten that guy's head yeah you uh, picky photons bugger damn photons i uh i think the other thing that this book rejoices in uh, on uh, rejoices in and um, reminds me is is you're a prolific reader and a, a you know much much more prolific than me and um, a, and you have um, this sort of polymathematical de desire to be a polymath to know a bit of everything, which is distinct from trying to be a know-it-all. But but if you know a bit about a lot of things, one thing you learn is that to be a specialist in any one of those things is out of your reach, right? Mm. So, so I, I know a bit about music and a bit about song. I probably have an unusual collections of collection of things that I can speak to, um, you know, not very unusual, but, but quite unusual just because of circumstance. Everyone does. So they have their own unique set of things. Um, but because I love learning new things and know a little bit, just to come back to this, you know, the more you know, the less you know thing, uh, is, it, is it allows you to get a glimpse of what it would take to go all the way. And that means, just to be a little bit political for a minute, when a vaccine, when a, when a, a, a pandemic comes along and some people to develop a vaccine and a bunch of people on the internet start talking about mRNA and shit, you just go, it is so obvious to me that these people are fucking chumps. These anti-vaxxers have no idea what they're talking about. But prior to trying to gather evidence for their pre-existing, you know, conspiracy theory, they hadn't done much work in this area. They hadn't read a lot of books on you know, not, not just biology or immunology or virology, but on science in general, they hadn't done the work to realize that when approaching a problem like this, if you don't really know what a double blind experiment is, you don't know what data collection entails. You don't know what P hacking is or cherry picking. You don't know what confirmation bias is. You don't, you, you haven't even got to come back to your very first chapter. You haven't got the basic set of tools to understand how little you understand in this sort of Dunning-Kruger effect thing. And so they, they, they are very, that sense that I've learned some stuff and therefore I know it, I think, is mitigated by knowledge. 
because when I learn something new, I go, oh, I've just had a little sniff of something, but I'm, I'm going to need years to get that. So I'm going to leave this to the experts. The experts say, get the vaccine. I'm going to get the vaccine and shut the fuck up, you know? So it's, it's, it, I think, I think that, that, that's something that being like you, being a polymath probably gives you real insight into what it would be to be a math in a singular direction and humbles you in that way, even though you're a super smart dude. Because there is that moment, isn't there, sometimes when you've been reading about something or studying something and, and you go to uh, a bar or whatever and you meet up with your friends, you go, I've been reading this amazing thing, right? And it's basically about the fact that uh, uh, DNA, uh, uh, the, the way that it, it divides and, re and then slowly as it comes out, you can just hear, uh, you understand this in your brain, but you do not yet have a level of understanding. Because I think there are there's, there's like different levels of understanding. You, you, you have that, that first bit, which is just confusing fusion with an idea then you have yeah. that beautiful thing which I, I i love the fact i've heard lots of people talk about both the lectures of faye dowker who's brilliant at imperial and also people who used to go and see richard Feynman, and they would say about the fact that you would watch the lecture and you would go oh wow i under yeah. and then you leave the lecture theater and you go oh it's still in that room it's not come yeah. with me that was yeah still there was a moment there i remember reading um See, I'm way behind. I, I'm nowhere near quantum physics. I, uh, I really. I'm not with even it. sure you need to worry about it. You know what? It's like no. The Helen I don't. Chersky. I don't even believe uh, the people who understand it. I, I, I've realised there are some things which seem so exotic that you keep returning to them, and then you go, "Yeah, do you know what? I, th I really do think this is best in a Philip K. Dick novel. This is a beautiful and wonderful thing, uh, but." I should probably be concentrating on some of the other ideas of cosmology and biology. Yeah. I love that like thing. Have you ever watched, your... I was going to say, have you ever watched the Mark Everett film, uh, Mark Everett of Eels, where he... Oh, no. Well, you know that his, his father was, was Hugh Everett III, who, who came up basically with many worlds. Right. And... And he was he went over to Copenhagen and met Niels Bohr and everyone just said you're talking rubbish and it shocked his his father so much and upset hold on him can so we much. just stop and get you to tell me the Bohr pun that you have in your book? Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle tattle that dropped out of our mouth. I want to make this very clear that it is the only pun in the book. So out of 110,000 words, it is, there's only three which are a pun. But and I was talking such with David, a good pun. But David Baddiel uh, became very interested in, in quantum mechanics and he wrote a play because well, he God's started dice. to worry. God's dice, yeah, because mm. he started to worry that because he wasn't able to understand the mathematics, was understanding quantum mechanics, and indeed even the scientists themselves, was it actually a faith position, like a religious faith position? Yeah. I and that led play. to me uh, coming up with the uh, pun that the fear of bore-again Christianity, um, oh. which, of course, when I did the talking book, I realised no one, you have to go, let me just spell that out, because this is yeah, works on the page. Yeah. Um, anyway, you're talking about Bohr. You're talking about um, Everett. Yeah, so, so, so Mark Everett's dad um, you know, came up with this many worlds theory. It, it was shot down and, and then he never, he kind of just detached himself 
and and just went and worked in as a scientist in business. Didn't have a close relationship with uh, his son Mark, who and, I, and Eels are one of my favourite bands as well. And uh, and then, in fact, if you if you've never read it, uh, Stories to Tell Your Grandchildren is an incredible book by Mark Everett about loss and about life and about keeping going it's very very beautifully written but he made this movie where he thought I thought I never really knew my dad we never really talked there was 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 very little physical contact um and so after his dad died he went off and he made a movie where he went I want to find out what my dad's work means and there's this beautiful bit in the movie where he goes and visits this scientist who basically shows him the double slit experiment the experiment where it yeah. appears uh, a, a particle is on a path and then just goes off in a couple of directions and then returns to be itself um there's just this bit where he goes whoa whoa man that that just doesn't make sense that is that is amazing you've blown my mind and the scientist goes yeah that's what we try and do and i yeah. love this bit because he's so excited he goes my mind's blown yeah that's what we're doing here we're blowing minds yeah, we're blowing and, minds. and and i love and those moments again are also those moments that shoot down all of those those tired but persistent images of scientific thinking being so different to all other human thinking that most of us have that that whole method of just kind of going right i'm going to the laboratory to work out a thing that there's this that when you see as you know as well that a flamboyant passion which sometimes is far greater than when i've sometimes seen artists being yeah. interviewed yeah. and uh partly i suppose because you can to some extent explain some of your method even if you can't yeah. necessarily explain inspiration and those other flashes that you might get, but yeah, I, I, and I love those things when you just suddenly see that excitement, which which says this. Yeah. And I think that's been. I remember doing a. Uh, uh, I can't remember. I was I was playing some radio telescope or other uh, somewhere up <laughs> in the north of England, and and afterwards someone came up to me and they went, "Oh, I'm really glad I came to your show because I've been I've been working on this thing for ten years and every now and again." I forget why I ever started going into science <laughs> taking so long. So I think, you know, what both of us sometimes do is we're, we're cutting out the bureaucracy, the failed experiments, and we're just going, yeah. hey, guys, we found out some amazing stuff. And, yeah. and I, I can imagine because there are – I remember Dar O'Brien saying to me once, he said, yeah, there are going to be people who will one day come up to you and go, thanks very much for saying science was exciting. 30 yeah. years of failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was wrong all along. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think, I think that, and and it would be a fair criticism or or at least analysis to say that people like you and I romanticize science, but we're not. And, and you know, sometimes I come across, and it's very worth understanding that science is flawed uh, hugely because it's done by people and because it's financed by often by um, you know institutions or that that have vested interests and there are there is as Goldacre has gone on to to really tackle there is no obligation for people to publish net negative studies which renders so much science fraudulent just by virtue of the fact that the negative studies aren't published on the way to some positive study and there's all sorts of subconscious, um, data hacking that happens but you can have in your head that science has a huge as a process has massive flaws uh, 
without losing touch with the idea that science as a philosophy, the base idea, to come back to one of the things I said very much earlier, um, the base idea is to try and learn to quantify our universe, to learn as much about it empirically as we possibly can, whilst as much as possible getting rid of our the filters which damage our ability to see the truth. And so you have this, I have a, a slightly, ro it's not romanticized, but I still feel romantic about the mission without having to be um, rose colored about the, how it's enacted. And also at the other end, not, not the origin of the idea of what science is about, nor the process by which we find the knowledge. But at the other end, the stuff that we have found, we, humanity, they, scientists, have found that sticks, that is undeniably true, that, you know, that the, the laws of science and the implications they have on what humans are in the universe, that is romantic and you can't take that away. And, and yes, if you've been in a lab for 30 years, you know, trying to see whether what is it who, who recently decided that neutrons were traveling faster than the speed of was it neutrons oh traveling neutrinos faster than yeah there was neutrino, the neutrinos neutrinos, thing, yeah. Sorry, neutrinos and it's a traveling. fun thing because it is that bit where they go it is possible but yeah. it could also be a wiring issue it's and, almost but, but, definitely but a, a cable week, everyone's oh. really excited and they go yeah but just just imagine hey what they met, and, and yep. it was crazy because they published the data and and they and you know there's uh, applying Occam's razor to a data set that says neutrinos are traveling faster than the speed of light uh the you'd need to check a lot of cables before you publish that data i mean it's just madness and, and everyone getting excited and a, a classic example of how the internet works, the two or three scientists on the planet who wanted to go, well, maybe were drown, drowned out the, the 9,999 scientists who were like, nope, it's going to be a cable, you know, but we're all excited. Just like when we get a regular signal of, of some neutron star, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just using the word neutron where I don't know stuff. Um, what, <laughs> what sends the little grand, green man signal? What yeah, was yeah, it? Yeah. It was a yeah. Yeah. it was a neutron star. Um, you know, we get a regular signal from outer space, and a, and the and the loud voices say it could be an alien. And nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine scientists go, nah, probably not. It's not going to be. But an alien. I think <laughs> quite a lot of them do go. It, it's that great thing, isn't it, about with the both the voices in your head? It's yeah. the, the the one voice goes, just imagine, and the yeah. other one goes, it's highly unlikely. But yeah. it's fine for you just to imagine as long as yeah. we keep yeah. the rigour going on. I mean, I think yeah. you're right as well about that. You know, in the book, I try every now and again. So it's not, a, a, you know, too delusional. I yeah. do have little footnotes and stuff and say, you know, this is not a perfect system. And also it's important oh. to remember, though, on the other side of it, where sometimes people go, oh, and it turns out that bit of science was wrong. And yeah. you go, who discovered As it? If, who found out yeah. it was wrong? A, a scientist, scientist. You idiot. Shut up, shut up. And, and um, why did they? Because of science, because of the process, yeah. But I think you're yeah, right, which is, is right. it's true of art, though, as well. I mean, as we know, basically, the moment institutions get involved, and I've, I've felt very uncomfortable, in fact, probably somewhere, someone that I'll never work for again, 
again because I mentioned it on stage and you're not meant to do that. But, you know, that moment, for instance, of I was doing an event and I found out one of the main sponsors was a weapons manufacturer, you know, an arms. Yeah, Yeah. I think I remember that. And, of course, you have, or, or even problems with things like the Science Museum in London where you go, hey, guys, three fossil fuel companies sponsoring you, including your climate change expert. And so there yeah. are, the, the moment, but as we also know in the arts, there's that bit where we can separately sit and come up with a magical idea, but it's a magical idea that requires an institution to be involved. And from the moment yeah. that you have to start, there's loads yeah. of people who aren't required, who are having all the meetings, twisting your idea. And so I think, yeah, you're, it is a, it is a not a, as much a science problem as, again, a human problem when you get to the scale of an idea which requires various different corporations getting involved yeah, or whatever yeah. it might be yeah i think i think that's right and i i think i think it's appropriate to feel romantic about science and i think you're a great advocate for that position and you don't have to be naive to feel to be in love you don't have to think your wife is perfect to to love her you know i think i think I think uh, the people who communicate the joy of science, people like you and all the many incredible science communicators like Katie Mack or, you know, Cox or I, I think it's such an important part of it because the world needs people to not just be lectured by the people who have found out the stuff because what we've learned in the last year I can't speak for England, but I'm sure it's the same. Humans do not understand big numbers. They cannot intuitively do a cost-benefit ratio when the numbers are in the tens of thousands, the one in 10,000 or the one in 100,000. The, the humans are very drawn to narratives and incredibly drawn to anecdotes. Desire to grab onto an anecdote, to an experience or to a narrative feels like dampening down our natural instinct for story. It, it, sometimes when scientists talk, it's like you're saying, take out the imagination, take out the storification, take out culture, make it all cold. But what it is, is encouraging people to see the amazing narrative, the universal narrative, the big narratives, bigger than the Bible, bigger than God, so much bigger than God. You know, the universe is so much bigger than anyone's idea of God, so much more exciting, so much grander. You know, evolution is so much bigger an idea than creation, seven days. You know, like these ideas are huge and exciting and get your heart pumping and make you feel good when you understand one and empowered. And that story, we need to keep telling that story so that when it comes to listen to those scientists, because when they say one in 10,000 people get a blood clot from this vaccine, but one in 100 get long COVID, one in 100 dies and one in 50 get long COVID, you need to understand that they get what that means. And you need to be excited by the fact that there are some humans on the planet who are much smarter than you about this and go, go humans who are much smarter than me. Yay, science. Yay, people who understand data. I'm a bit of a goose about this stuff, but I fucking love it. So thanks so much for being really, really good at data and cost-benefit ratios because I'm a bit of a chump. You know, that that's it, it's what you're doing in this book. I, I, as you can imagine, I'm very 
are grateful for because we need to make science we need to make people understand that it's really fucking exciting that people are out there understanding our world without getting too uh distracted by by all these little dirty human biases we have well you're right also that story thing is so important it's like when i was talking to carlo Rovelli, who's one of my favorite writers of not merely a, also a great scientist and and a great writer on science and and you know he's still frustrated by the fact that he goes you know there's too much teaching about levers and pulleys in science we yeah. don't need all that and and i do think it's a great pity where i i know lots of science teachers and people like alam shaha who i who i talked to uh, oh yeah book, who just are um you know why can't we teach how we got to this idea before you see the equation the really exciting bit is how some people were looking at the sky or were looking at a mountain or were looking at the behaviour of a frog and they started to go, hang on, why is that moving to there and what is going on inside and what would be the reason for the yeah. whole of this creature's narrative? And that bit is the bit that then means when you see the equation, you go, or whatever it might be, you go, oh, oh, I'm attached to that as opposed to something that is totally it is both detached and yet it's about the world that's all around you but those yeah, things are not and i know so many frustrated yeah. teachers on, on on that side of things going yeah it, the, the information alone is not important just that on its own stood no alone. they'll get there if they're into science they'll get to those equations it's like i think and, and look uh, you know there's nothing more annoying than non-teachers talking about teachers so i'm not this is there's no implied criticism in what anyone well, well I, I was going to say i'll just add to that the fact that for me from my experience it's very much about the people who are setting the policy not yeah. the people in the classroom no who are, who and are i'm desperate sure to change it i'm sure the policy setters all have great intentions as well but the great science communicators of our that we love, uh, they teach the awe. They teach the curiosity and the awe, which comes back to what we were saying. We love the purity of the intention of the scientific method or of, of, of sort of the enlightenment, and we love the incredible shit you get out of it. All the stuff in the middle we understand to be messy and a lot of it slightly beyond us because it takes years and years and years. But the awe at one end of what we've discovered and the curiosity of how we started discovering it, if you teach that first at either end, then maybe people will move inwards from that and some of them will end up being scientists and have to know the equations. But my daughter's in year nine and learning chemical equations right now. And I find it quite interesting, but she doesn't know what's exciting about chemistry yet. Like what's how chemistry fits in to the global understanding of the universe, how biology and chemistry and physics fit into uh, how we understand the universe. It's not, they just start dividing those three categories off and learning, doing a semester of each. And she has no, it's only at home that every now and then, I get into trying to teach some of the awe and it's not, you don't teach the awe, you share the awe, you present, you uh, model the awe. Oh, I had this thought the other day. And again, that sounds like I'm lecturing about teaching. I'm more talking about the philosophy of what we, what kids, what I would have liked to have 
inherited. It took till my 20s, I found it myself in the end. I never studied science. I studied philosophy, which got me into logic, which got me into, hold on, some of these beliefs are weird, which got me into how do we know what's good and what's bad information, which got me into the scientific method, which got me into nerding out, you know. See, that's it, because one of the things that Alon said to me was that what worries him about the way that science, uh, the way the curriculum is set out, is science is the one subject that is meant to basically whittle it down to the people who are going to become scientists, in the way yeah. that English is not there to whittle it down to the people who are going to become no, novelists or music. poets. Yeah, no, and, and, right. I, and, I, and he feels almost there should be a separate curriculum as well, which is basically saying, this isn't for people who are necessarily going to go and work in a radio, at a radio telescope, whatever it might yeah. be. This is just for people who want to know the stories of yeah. it. Well, and, across and all education. Again, that's our I, function, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, and again, no implied criticism, but wouldn't it be great if the main thing kids got out of secondary education or you know school is a love of learning and excitement about what what the buzz you can get out of acquiring knowledge and i'm absolutely sure that is where all of our origin stories of loving learning come from school and from some teacher or some moment and a lot of it is just the kids fault they're incurious little shits but um, because when you're young, it's not as easy to be excited about learning. There's a lot going on for you, you know. And I'm sure you could show me data that shows, actually, you know what? Chemistry, teaching or it doesn't, doesn't work. What you're trying to do is exploit the, the, the plasticity of teenage brains to take in as many kind of forms of thinking as possible, and later they'll get the or. And if you showed me those experiments, which you, you know, the data might be there, then I'd go, yep don't have a clue what I'm fucking talking about. But sometimes when I watch my kids getting educated, I'm like, oh, you hate this subject. My daughter hates science. And I, that my daughter's a dick, so it's probably her own bloody fault. But, but I wish it breaks my heart, you know, but she won't. I know she won't hate science. And I say that, I'm like, you won't hate science. You might hate science for the whole of high school. You might never study it, but you will not hate science. Yeah, I think not, mm. knocking down the walls between subjects, which is a big thing, so we won't go into now because I know we've yeah. run out of time. But the knocking down those walls and going, all of these things are connected. You're not, uh, you don't have yeah. to think you're arty or you're sciencey. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, read yeah. Frankenstein, and as you read Frankenstein, you'll find out that Mary Shelley is also writing about many things that were, you know, experiments that were going on, ideas which were about electricity and uh, about, you know, yeah. the, the the life force. There's so many uh, beautiful things what was your thing the last i'm just going to ask you one thing quickly okay. for, which is uh i was going to pick I up as well on, on on the um reading thing because sometimes people say oh you read a lot but i should say i'm very tiggerish in my reading i put up a little thing on on youtube uh last week to show because sometimes people go how do you read so many books and i go well i read them like in fact in i've got a, 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 um yeah or no I, I i'd start reading and then it goes into another one and in fact i've realized i properly have art and science either side i've just looked down i've got uh John John Wheeler, who is amazing. I mean, John Wheeler, this originally I wanted the book just to start with uh, a quote from him. And I'll see if it's, I'm not sure if it's in this book or another one, but his John Wheeler, who was one of the most inspirational uh, physicists in terms of the effect he had on so many Nobel Prize winning physicists is remarkable. But he just, the way that he talks about asking the questions and the excitement of, there's a great quote, actually, Jana Levin talked about this. I forget which Jewish scientist it was. I was I was doing a thing with uh, um, Daniel Handler the other day, who's the guy who writes Lemony Snicket. 
yeah. And and I was and he had this great line where he said one of the great things about being brought up in the Jewish tradition is you are allowed to answer a question with a question. And yeah. and I thought that's part of I think one of the things we enjoy. But the other thing was uh, Jana talked about this this scientist who said his mother taught him very well because when he came back from school she would never say what did you do today she would just say did you ask any good questions and oh think, no ah, that is fantastic but yeah so I've got John Wheeler on one side can't find the quote there and I've got Pipilotti wrist on the other side and if anyone. Her exhibition at uh, the MCA in Sydney was one of the most brilliant and fascinating, exciting things um, that I've that I've, I've seen. I've got um, I've got uh, um, uh, Bindi, which is a children's book by an Indigenous Australian woman that uses lots of it's 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 poems, um, but there's some beautiful language in here, and uh, predictably on the other side. I've got a Vonnegut uh, because I'm writing a TV series that has as one of its central questions to come right back to the beginning of our conversation. In this series I'm writing, the central question, one of the central themes is to what extent are comforting lies um, understandable and to what extent should we insist on uncomfortable truths? Um, and Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle starts with uh, nothing in this book is true. This is the little epilogue. Live by the FOMA that make you brave and kind and healthy and happy. And FOMA with a little asterisk is harmless untruths. And I don't, I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. I haven't read Cat's Cradle for ages, so I don't know what Vonnegut's conclusion is. I think he's satirizing the idea that uh, harmless untruths good and you know the book of mormon as a musical sort of seems to conclude that it doesn't really matter what your story is as long as it makes you happy um i don't believe that i am much more comfortable with uncomfortable truths but i think what your your book says and what this conversation has kind of danced around or or, or been going at the whole time is that we do sort of think that science is a cold hard uncomfortable truth and on the other side are all these lovely, comforting, harmless narratives that, that allow you to avoid the hard truth and actually make your life happier. And I think you and I believe it's bullshit. I think science is a comforting story as well. You just have to uh, know, like, go on that adventure and, and learn to take comfort in those truths. And um, you won't feel the need to seek solace in harmless, harmless untruths as much, maybe. That well, sounds hope, a bit con I mean, that, that, condescending that, that, what, to harmless untruths. I don't mean it to be. Well, I'm I just trying to spruik for the excitement of science. Accepting that, because I mean, in the neuroscience chapter, one of the things that I wanted to deal with was the fact that when you're sometimes arguing with someone because you're certain of your truth, the realisation that actually the way we put together the picture of the world means that it is so subjective that <laughs> yeah. maybe when you're disagreeing about the colour of a dress or whatever else it might yeah. be, just go, you saw that, I saw this, yeah, not important, and 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 accepting some sometimes. I mean, I think that is one of the things that some of this research gives you, is is it really does give you the sense to hold on to your truths with a very very light grip, because of the way yeah. your mind works, actual testable ways that your mind works. And the other thing that I hope I'd have I'd, I'd have written more about. Well, I did. I wrote a hundred thousand words more than was required, and they've all disappeared in a bin. Um, but <laughs> that bit of realizing that all of the the connections. I mean, we talked before about the way our brains work and flip it and jib it around, but 
that that's what I think a lot of scientific information gives you is so many different ways of connecting with it's like a story that I, I put in the book which I really like Frank Drake you know who wrote the Drake equation about yeah. what is required on a planet for there to be life yeah. and he was working at SETI the search for extraterrestrial intelligence yeah. where you know you're sitting there waiting to hear the signal <laughs> but he also worked at uh, a crisis phone line so yeah. as well as him listening for the signals from aliens he would spend his nights listening Hearing to human signal. beings Mm. who were alone and I think that his story I'd almost like to write a whole book about that because that question of are we alone and then realizing let's before we worry too much let us still think about who else might be in the universe but let's also think about who's down the street because I think yeah. there's someone down there who's alone and I think the fact that Frank Drake and and Seth Shostak who, who worked a lot with him said his door was always open he always said hello he was always yeah. ready to communicate and I think that's when you see that kind of ambition at its best a grand scientific ambition which is also played out in the corridors in the, and on the phone lines and in life yeah, yeah. that's beautiful I, I feel the seed of a whole other conversation Oh which man, is this, a, we've never which finished is a, a conversation, conversation. <laughs> a conversation we should have about um, re relativistic. Tr you know, you were you were pointing out that given that you know our reality is constructed, you can have concurrent, seemingly oppositional truths. Um, there's a big conversation to have about. We we live in a time when, obviously, we do want to be able to assert that one truth is is better than another and it's very very important that we can so um that that's let's have that conversation next time part two to be continued again congratulations on your book thank you i can't wait i'll get back to you when i finished it uh if it's shit i'll i'll if the second half or the second three quarters is shit i'll like put it on twitter and stuff because Some i've very the, publicly declared it's good so far well, the, I think in the second half where I've got to do in the talking book, I've found some very interesting typos that don't entirely change the meaning, but do create a picture that I was not intending. So I think from, from the purposes of like kind of mutation, heredity and natural selection of words, yeah. you, will, you might find yeah. some interesting right. things. All right. Well, Here's have a lovely Tim. day. I'm going you have to have a lovely uh, night. I'm going to go have some dinner. Thank you very much for listening. Robin's book, The Importance of Being Interested, Adventures in Scientific Curiosity, is out now. Cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop is where you can get it. Signed and personally dedicated editions, as well as lots of books from other Shambles people. So head there and get that. Thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thanks for listening. Uh, I might have already said that at the top. Hard to remember. That was minutes ago at this point. Rate, like, review, five stars on Apple Podcasts. Back next week with another new episode where Helen will be co-hosting with Robin again and we will be talking to our friend, the astronaut, Commander Chris Hadfield. Until then, have a great week. Take care. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Go, go, go.